Well, church, let's uh, grab our Bibles as part of our worship this morning and let's turn to the Gospel of Mark together, chapter 9 of Mark today. If you need a Bible, we can supply you with that. Just raise your hand. There's a note page in your bulletin. Looks like this. Grab that note page if you wouldn't mind. And then also I will ask you in one simultaneous moment to silence that cell phone uh, if you haven't done that as well so that that would not be a distraction as we move through our time together. And church family, as you might have suspected, if you had glanced at your note, note page earlier before maybe service began, we're stepping into a new study series today, but I would actually prefer to call it a mini-series. You see, we are on the leading edge of um, a time of the year when life's general routine kind of flies out the window, at least as far as the church calendar is concerned. School is ending and summer is beginning and life groups and Awana are wrapping up and then there's there's vacations, family vacations and Hume Lake and missionaries are coming home and they're spending time with us here. For Lisa and I, a a, a granddaughter is going to be soon arriving and we want to be a part of that thought. And so uh, we're going to have different people in the pulpit, all of which is great. I mean, it's really, really great. But such a season as we are moving into wreaks havoc with any kind of an attempt at a a larger, deeper, more involved, extended study series, kind of like the one we just wrapped up not long ago in 1 John. And so what we do is we'll just, we take the schedule, we take the calendar that we are given, and in this moment that means a a four-Sunday, four-part mini-series called It's All About Jesus. What's it about, Pastor Tim? It's all about Jesus. That's exactly right. A deliberate, all-points-focused-on-him mini-series. What is the Christian life about, church family? It's about Jesus, isn't it? It's about our relationship with Jesus. He is its beginning, its middle, its end. He is its foundation and its purpose and its destination. And I've been thinking for some time that it would just be fun to hang out with some of the places in Scripture that that very clearly and very powerfully remind us that it's all about Jesus. But it'll be more than just a time of fun for us. That wouldn't be enough to drive the day. But the truth is, it's all about Jesus is ultimately what unites us, isn't it? That is what unites us today. Binds us, holds us together, you and me, this church family we call Idlewild Bible Church. As part of the larger church family, uh, globally, it's all about Jesus. We are people from such... Varied backgrounds and stories and, and stations in life and interests and vocations and nationalities and ages and generations. But we are made one. We are made one in the Lord Jesus. In fact, was that not Jesus' prayer on the night before he was crucified? John chapter 17, verse 23. Father, make them one so that the world will know that you sent me. Brothers and sisters, when for us it is all about Him, when Jesus is the main thing, so many of the lesser things that could divide us can't and won't, so long as He is what we are all about. And so my prayer is that 
this little mini-series won't just be fun or informative or faith-affirming. My prayer is that it will be unifying for us, this little four-week run in this direction. This morning, then, we're going to spend some time with an incredible moment in the life of the Lord Jesus, a moment that is often referred to as the Transfiguration. In fact, your Bible might even use those very words as a superscription to introduce this section of the Gospel of Mark. Would you see those words there on your Bible page? Are they there? The Transfiguration? Now, if you're fairly new in your journey with Jesus and still learning all that your Bible holds for you, the the transfiguration of Jesus might sound more than just a little bit weird. Kind of like, what in the world is that? I've never heard of that before. And if that should be you this morning, that's a fantastic thought. This is a learning day for you if that's a new term for you this morning. Because this is really one of the coolest parts in the unfolding drama that is the story of Jesus. And everybody needs to know about this moment in his, his, his journey. So for one brief moment, Jesus lifts the curtain on his humanity. And he lets three of his dearest disciples and friends see himself as he really is when his body of flesh is not covering up his majestic glory as God. These privileged disciples see Jesus, the Jesus who is before Bethlehem, and they see the Jesus who will be after the resurrection. And we're invited to catch a glimpse as well. Your Bible is open to Mark chapter 9, but permit me to back us up, if you will, to verse 27 of chapter 8 as part of just helping to to set up the scene for us. So you follow along, please, as I read, beginning at verse 27 of Mark 8. It says, And Jesus went with on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. In other words, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse 2. Chapter 9. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. We'll stop right there. The reason we backed up to verse 27, church family, was to help us to be able to see at least one of the reasons why Jesus enters into this transfiguration moment. The disciples with Peter as their mouthpiece responded spot on to Jesus' question, Who do people say I am? Well, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the Deliverer. And Jesus doesn't deny it. And then in verse 31, the disciples are blindsided. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, if we step into the disciples' sandals, we have little difficulty imagining how they are feeling in this moment. Confused at the very least, perhaps even devastated. Jesus has just rocked their world because of what he lays on them here. Their idea of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah and what that truth meant to Jesus Those were very different ideas. He tells them that before he can become the king of kings, Messiah, that that they're looking for, he must first be the suffering servant savior, Messiah. And they hadn't bargained for that. The Messiah whom the Father had promised to a sin-infected, spiritually dying humanity. In the Old Testament, God promised that he would send one who would... Pay the sin debt that every human being owes to a holy God. And that's why Jesus says, I am going to go to Jerusalem, suffer horrific things there, be murdered, and then rise from the dead. And when the disciples hear this truth, they are devastated by that. You can only imagine how it took them off guard. And if that's not enough, Jesus says in verses 34 to 38, and oh, by the way, If you continue to follow me, many of the things that I will endure at the hands of evil, unbelieving people, you will too. Just so you know. To follow me is to be hated and to live in the shadow of your own cross, Jesus says. So suffice it to say, there is a heaviness, maybe a crushing heaviness, that settles down on Jesus' followers, especially the twelve the closest to Jesus. They don't know what to think. They just know that whereas only a short few days before, they're riding the crest of the messianic wave in anticipation of a glorious future. Now the horizon is dark with shadows and uncertainty and and even death. 
And Jesus knows this. He, he, he looks right into the hurting hearts of his disciples and he reads their devastated thoughts. He knows they need something to pull them out of this place of fear and uncertainty and maybe even despair. So what will that something be? Well, how about the transfiguration? And, and, and you know what? We need that from time to time, don't we, brothers and sisters? We, we need a fresh reminder of who our Lord Jesus really is, a fresh glimpse of this one that we are giving our lives to and our future to. Sometimes we just need a fresh glimpse of him. And we get that today. Robert Louis Stevenson is a name many of you might recognize. He was an immensely popular novelist in the 1800s. He wrote such classic works as, as Treasure Island and Kidnapped. But he also wrote many short stories. And in one of these, he tells of a sailing ship that was fighting its way through a, a terrific storm, pitching and heaving before gigantic waves. The passengers down in the inner compartment were scared to death. They were shaking, expecting the ship to go down. One of them, finally, against the captain's orders, went up onto the wave-washed deck, and he fought his way back to the back part of the vessel where the pilot stood at the ship's wheel. The seaman working the great wheel against the waves saw the man and knew instantly that he was terrified. The wind was pounding the sails. The spray was howling past in stinging sheets. So he didn't say a word. He simply looked at this person who had come up on deck and gave a reassuring smile and a nod of his head to the man. That's all. The man immediately turned, went back down to the other passengers in the, in the ship and said, I have seen the face of the pilot and he smiled at me. All is well. The story of the transfiguration could easily turn on that phrase as Peter, James and John go up on the mountain and they see the unveiled glory of King Jesus. I have seen the face of the pilot and he smiled at me. All is well. Six days after the heart-rending news of 831 and the sober warning that followers of Jesus are also going to be cross-bearers for Jesus in 834, he takes these three disciples up onto the heights of Mount Hermon, which is located at the extreme northern end of the Galilean Valley. Mount Hermon is a big mountain. It's 9,200 feet high and snow-capped for part of the year. And so Jesus takes his disciples up onto the flanks of this mountain. And it is here that Jesus calls the greatest summit conference ever. In our day, we're familiar with meetings of high-level leaders of nations being called a summit. The G7 summit meets periodically, attended by presidents and prime ministers. In fact, the G7 meets next weekend in Italy. Well, Jesus calls his own summit in this moment, and he literally convenes it on the highest mountain in this part of the world. 
And oh, what a meaning this is going to be. There are going to be seven in attendance. Jesus, of course, and God the Father. And then the inner circle of the twelve. That would be Peter, James, and John. These disciples are going to hold critical leadership roles in Jesus' church as it grows from, from nothing into tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and then millions. Peter's going to be the very first preacher of the risen Jesus. He will be present in Acts chapter 2, the day that the church is born. James is going to lead the Jerusalem church and then become the first of the twelve to be martyred for his love of Jesus. And it will be John who is the longest lived of all twelve disciples. He'll preach the risen, glorified Jesus well into his 80s, pen several uh, of the epistles and letters of of the New Testament. In short, these three are going to become the point of the spear in bearing a powerful, reliable witness of what they see on this day. And then Mark tells us that two of the Old Testament's greatest figures are going to round out the seven. One is Moses and the other is Elijah. Bible scholars are quick to point out that these two characters, perhaps more than any two other characters in the Old Testament, symbolize the the two great parts of the Old Testament. You've got Moses representing the law and you have Elijah representing the prophets. Now, do you think it is a coincidence when Luke tells us on the first, the day of the first resurrection as Jesus appears to the two travelers on the road to Emmaus in, in Luke 24, do you think it's an accident when it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is breaking the Old Testament down into two parts, the law and the prophets. So perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that these two, Moses and Elijah, would be here on the mountain representing the Old Testament scriptures. And don't forget that they also conversed with God, each one of them, on a mountain. So why not now, in this moment, with the Son of God on a mountain? Seven will gather for the greatest summit conference ever so that Jesus can put on display for three of his disciples his awesome, uncovered, blinding glory, which will confirm in their hearts that despite the coming of the cross, it is and always will be about Jesus. He is their longed-for Messiah. They can confidently follow him all the way. Now, all of this brings us then to that third thought there on your note page, the glory of the transfigured Jesus. You with me there? You see that? Yeah, okay, great. Mark tells us in verse 2 that once up on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, that word that Mark uses there is for transfigured is the Greek word metamorpho. What English word do we get from metamorpho? Yeah, metamorphosis. Absolutely. This, this word literally refers to something changing from one form into another form without changing the essential essence of that thing. And, of course, the perfect illustration from nature of that is the caterpillar, right? That metamorphose into a butterfly. The butterfly takes on a a very different form, but the essential essence of the caterpillar is never lost in the process. 
And that's, that's the word. That's what it means. Transfigured, metamorphosed. That's Jesus here in this moment. And one Bible teacher puts it this way. For a brief moment, the veil of Jesus' humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory which was always in the depths of his being rose to the surface for that one time in his earthly life. To put it another way, the disciples get to see for just a moment the glory of the Jesus who existed before Bethlehem in eternity past and the glory of the Jesus who will be in eternity future after his resurrection. So it's a glance back. It's also a glimpse forward. The uncovered glory of God the Son. Such majestic glory could only belong to God. And of course, that's the point. And that's what Jesus wants his disciples to see. Now, Mark, as we can tell, is really struggling to try to convey what this glory of the transfigured Jesus looks like. All you have to do is is read verse 3 and you know, man, he is really working hard uh, and, and so are Luke and Matthew, and they're parallel accounts of this same moment. Mark says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. And then he looks for some kind of an analogy, and what does he do? He goes to the laundry room, doesn't he? No one on earth could bleach clothes like this, he says. I mean, that's, a, that's reaching for your analogy, pretty much, because he can't find anything. Luke says, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Like lightning, some translations say. And in Matthew, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Now that's getting close. We can, we can kind of begin to picture that brilliant as the sun. Have you ever seen pictures of scientists testing atomic bombs in World War II? Remember these kinds of pictures? Sure you do. They all don these super dark goggles so that their eyes will not be damaged by the brilliant light that results from the nuclear blast. So multiply that thought by an impossible to calculate amount And here is Jesus on this mountain, the Son of God, glorified. Had Mark or Luke or Matthew been living in our day, they might have said, Jesus' face and his clothes shone brighter than a million atomic bombs going off at one time. That's a little better than bleached, whiter than anybody could bleach it, right? And they would not have been exaggerating. Now, now Mark says that nothing about the three disciples having goggles on, but somehow they can see this without being blinded. That's supernatural in itself. How hard it must be for an artist desiring to accurately capture this moment in a painting. It's an impossible task. You just can't do it. Now, if you'll flip that study page over, let's chase down for a moment the question there at the top of the page. What exactly is this glory that the disciples see? Now, a moment ago I said, well, it's a glance back and it's a glimpse forward. 
It's a glance back in time before Bethlehem, eternity past, when it was the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's a glimpse forward into eternity future. But that still is just a little bit vague. So maybe this will help. Three thoughts. First, we can say that this transfigured glory that Peter, James, and John see is the glory of Jesus in his absolute sinless nature. And to help us catch a sense of this, we would need to look no further than the Old Testament book of Isaiah and chapter 6, which you're free to turn to if you want to. We'll put the passage up on the screen as well. In the opening verses of Isaiah 6, God grants an extraordinary privilege to Isaiah by giving him, through a vision, a glimpse into the very throne room of heaven, God in heaven. And here is what he sees and hears. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's just a way of expressing the majestic nature of the person of God. His train fills up the temple. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim, the angels. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy. What does that word mean? That means without sin, doesn't it? Holy uncontaminated by sin in even the most minute amount. And here the angels sing out and worship the holiness of God. Antiphonally, back and forth, they're singing the same words, holy, 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 one to the other. And, 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 and this is the only one of God's glorious attributes that's ever elevated to what we might call the third level. It's not holy, and he's not holy, holy. He is holy, 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 and it is repeated over and over and over. And, and this is a, a level of holiness that just radiates from God's person. And it requires, it demands that these worshiping angels do what? They cover their faces with two of their wings. And these are angels that are specifically tasked with the worship of God. But they have to cover their faces as they do this. They can't look on holy God, even though they themselves are not infected by sin. They still have to cover their faces in his brilliance. Contrast that with what Isaiah will later, later tell us in Isaiah 64, verse 6. Our righteousness, brothers and sisters, is like what? Filthy rags. The very best of us is like filthy rags before a holy God. So when Mark says Jesus' clothes became intensely white and radiant and others say white as a lightning flash and shining like the sun, they are all trying to say the same thing. The glorious outward splendor is really the result of a perfect inner purity and holiness. 
absolute sinlessness. That is what the disciples see. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one whose name is Jesus, who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And it is this perfect sinlessness of Jesus and only Jesus that makes it possible for him, as we know, to take upon himself at the cross the sin of the world, your sin, my sin. He can be the perfect sacrifice for sin that God's holiness demands. And Peter and James and John get to see that here on the mountain. As well, they are permitted to see, secondly there, the glory of Jesus' purposeful suffering. And where do we get that from? Well, in Luke's account of the transfiguration, there on your note page, Luke says in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 9 of his gospel, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his what? His departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Mark leaves out that detail. And it's a very important detail, but thank, thank you, Holy Spirit, that Luke doesn't leave that out. Because now we know what the three were talking about there in that glorious moment. The three of them talk about the very same thing that Jesus shared with his disciples back in 831. The crucifixion. His death. Peter, James, and John hear Moses, the law, and, and, and Elijah, the prophets, speak about how Jesus will, by his death and by his resurrection, atone for every broken law and every rebellious act. They hear the three discuss Jerusalem, the treachery of the religious leaders, the brutality of the cross, and the certainty of the resurrection. These two great Old Testament figures help to confirm, I believe, to the disciples that the suffering of Jesus is not only a necessary part of his coming into the world, it is a most holy thing. It is a glorious thing. And the glory radiates from the redemption plan that God the Father and God the Son have, have, have brought together. And then thirdly, the disciples hear and see the glory of Jesus' eternal sonship. Now, except for the tongue of Peter, the disciples are paralyzed, right? <laughs> Awash in the glorious splendor of Jesus' sinless purity, his saving purpose. They're just, they're in the middle of this thing. And, and then Peter, Peter rushes in where, where angels have the good sense to, to just stay quiet. And in verse 5 he says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he didn't know what to say. For they were terrified. When you don't know what to say, it might be good to do what? Just say nothing. Yeah? Oh, this is so vintage Peter, though. I mean, we love Peter. One of the reasons we love him is because this is who he is. 
Back in chapter 8, it was Jesus who interrupted Peter when Peter said he didn't approve of of the redemptive plan that would include Jesus dying. Remember that? And, And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are talking like Satan would talk. I don't want that in my... Get away. Now Peter says, hey, we like this moment. This is really cool. Let me build some huts and we can all just hang out together here. Right? Now this time God the Father interrupts Peter. So he's batting a thousand at this point. The Father descends on the mountain in a glorious, brilliant holy cloud envelops the six we're told and says this is my beloved son listen to him don't talk listen to him in other words God without saying it is really saying it's all about it's all we can do that a little better right yeah it's all about Jesus, absolutely. That's what God is saying. Don't talk. Don't do anything to try to improve on this moment. Just listen because it's all about Jesus. Verse 7. When the Father says, this is my beloved Son, that was to put to rest any any lingering particle of doubt that there might be in the disciples' minds that Jesus could perhaps just be a man upon whom God had bestowed amazing power and ability. This, that, that obliterates that thought. The Father says, this is my Son. And He sets Jesus apart from Moses or Elijah or any other human being and declares the unbroken line of love that exists between the first and second persons of the Trinity. The eternal relationship of Father and Son that has existed before there was even time, God affirms that here. This is my Son whom I love. The disciples, if they haven't already figured it out, are never again going to think of Jesus as merely a man. He is God who in humility wears our humanity so that he can die for our sins and rise for our salvation. Peter, James, and John are given this amazing moment on the mountain with Jesus as a gift, really. A gift to hold on to when the days to come get harder and harder and Jerusalem draws closer and closer and the cross that Jesus anticipates becomes the cross from which they will see him hanging. And the Father says, hold on to Him. Don't doubt Him. Follow Him all the way. Listen to Him. Because it's all about Him. Yeah? Listen to him when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen to him when he says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Listen to him when he says, I am the bread of life. 
I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me will not die. Listen to him when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Listen to him when he says, I am the true vine. And you can do nothing apart from me. Listen to him when he says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send you the spirit of truth who will be with you forever. Listen to him when he says, my peace I leave with you, not as the the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. Listen to him. It's all about him. And then, as suddenly as all of this has unfolded, Jesus once more veils his glory. And Mark says in verse 8, they look around and they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And left hanging in the air was that proposal that Jesus had made that God the Father had cut short. How about I put up some shelters and let's camp out here? Do you think it's safe to say or assume that Peter and James and John wanted to prolong the mountain moment? Do you think they would have liked it to to have been a, maybe maybe even never come down again, right? Let's just stay up here forever, right? Peter would have liked that thought, I'm thinking. But Jesus will have none of that. They've received what he wants them to have. They've seen the glorious face of the pilot. He has smiled. All is well. Now it's time to come down off the mountain and go back into a dying world and proclaim the good news, right? Yeah. They've heard the command from the Father. Listen to him. Because it's all about Him. The Father is declaring it is all about Jesus. And and church family, when it's all about Jesus, in a junior high or high school young person's life, man, they are inspired to live radically in their school. When it's all about Jesus in their life. When it's all about Jesus, adults center their life ambition on making much of Jesus and not very much of themselves. True? When it's all about Jesus. When it's all about Jesus in a marriage, two become three, and a cord of three strands, Scripture says, is not quickly broken. And when it's all about Jesus in a family, parents' love and children's respect and harmony prevails in a home when it's all about Jesus in that home. When it's all about Jesus in a church, no one has the time or the energy or the want to to fight about matters that mean very little. They love each other because that's what Jesus said to do, right? And they listen to Him. And they love each other. And if they fight, when it's all about Jesus, they fight for Him. And they fight for unity because they know this is how the world's going to know that God sent Jesus to save sinners. When it's all about him. 
This incredible moment on the mountain is not lost on Peter. He will write, Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Because it really is all about Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Well, that's it. What a simple message. Boy, if we don't catch this one, we are really missing <laughs> really missing it and very dull. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for being so plain and clear to us today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this moment that is like any, unlike any other moment in, in your story. And thank you for sharing it with us through Peter, James, and John. And thank you for the central message of this. It's all about you. It's all about you. All that you have done. Praise be to you. May we live like that this week, Heavenly Father. May we live like it is all about Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen, amen and Amen.